Okay, let's go into your next patient. Okay. This patient is 36 years old, and she presented in her third trimester of pregnancy. She, during her pregnancy, noticed an abnormality or a fullness in the right breast, but ultimately, toward the end of the pregnancy, end of the third trimester, she presented with a distinct abnormality in the right breast and a 3.5-centimeter mass that was palpable, as well as palpable axillary adenopathy. She underwent a needle biopsy, which confirmed a grade 3 invasive ductal carcinoma, triple negative, ERPR negative, and HER2 non-amplified on the core biopsy with a proliferative index, KI67, of 60%. I saw her after that biopsy. On examination, the tumor could easily be palpated. It was movable, but it was, she had small breast, and it did extend. It was not the size of the tumor that was most worrisome. It was the fact that her breast was quite small, and it appeared that it could be abutting the pectoralis, but it was not fixed to the chest wall, and it did appear to be operable. And was this her first pregnancy? This is her fourth pregnancy. She has three children under the age of six and a half. Her due date was January. Wow. This was November when I met her. Wow. Now, what about her thoughts in terms of breast conservation, or was that even a possibility? Breast conservation was not a possibility at that point. The thoughts really were, and this is an extraordinarily determined young woman with her husband. They're both pharmacists, and they knew their facts. The decision, actually, or the discussion about a decision was, should she receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, or should she proceed with a mastectomy, unilateral mastectomy at the time, and then her delivery? Again, realizing this was the end of November, almost the beginning of December, that if a decision for surgery were made, she could ultimately deliver in early January, which is what actually did occur. So she sought several medical oncology and surgical oncology opinions. One of the surgeons that saw her was concerned that she would need a latissimus flap. She's very, very thin, so that the idea of a tram flap would not have been reasonable, plus she was pregnant. And one of the surgeons thought that she might not be able to undergo a mastectomy unless she had neoadjuvant therapy. The surgeon at our institution and the plastic surgeon that saw her at our institution felt pretty comfortable that she could undergo a mastectomy without any immediate reconstruction and then have her delivery. The patient ultimately made that decision, not any of her physicians. She felt she wanted to proceed as quickly as possible with a mastectomy, have her child, and begin adjuvant therapy after that. So, Antonio, that's kind of an interesting thought. I can't remember hearing that before. Neoadjuvant therapy to facilitate mastectomy. Have you run into that situation? We do. And, I mean, I think this is more of the patients that have what may be considered truly locally advanced disease. We tend, in our clinical practice, we tend to see a lot of patients being considered for preoperative systemic therapy on the basis of having, quote-unquote, more locally advanced disease. But that has a lot to do with a little bit of stage migration because we are very, very careful with breast imaging. And our folks often, our breast imaging specialists often identify patients with clinically negative axillas but have uh, ultrasound of the axilla showing abnormally looking lymph nodes. And then an FNA shows that they have actually positive lymph nodes. And so many of those patients are being sent for preoperative therapy, which is a very different population than the more traditional patient that used to be considered 
for pre-op therapy. So the patient with truly locally advanced disease, a large tumor that may not be very mobile, could be attached to the skin, could be attached to the chest wall. And so in many cases, those more traditional locally advanced tumors, I see the surgeons often asking us to consider pre-op therapy not with the goal of facilitating breast conservation, but truly to try to improve the operability and minimize the risk of having residual positive margins. And in her case, actually, it appears that there was some invasion of uh, skeletal muscle, but the surgeon at the time was able to do some resection of muscle and achieve negative margins. And so to an extent, that is a concern about her risk of local recurrence. And so one could argue that perhaps preoperative therapy, chemotherapy, might have reduced the risk of having residual margins, even though at this point she is margin negative. In her case, it really was as much for closure. They were worried in a woman with very small breasts where they could not bring up a tram. They didn't want to have to do a latissimus flap. And the concern was that they might not be able to close it, again, depending on the surgeon that saw her. It wasn't so much the pectoralis at the time, but it was really just whether they could close that. The other issue to bring up in this patient is knowing that she's triple negative, the value of neoadjuvant therapy, not so much in improving survival, but giving an in vivo response to therapy. The patient wasn't particularly, in fact, was not interested in that aspect of it. But I certainly have been considering neoadjuvant therapy a little more frequently in those patients with triple negative disease where I like to know whether they really are having a good pathologic response to treatment. The one other aspect to bring up, and Steve and I didn't talk much about it, but is the whole issue of the reconstruction and the final cosmetic outcome, because this woman had a mastectomy without placement of a tissue expander. And this is someone who is definitely going, I think one would know from the beginning that she's going to receive post-mastectomy radiation. And she's very small. She's thin. I'm not sure she would be a candidate at the end for a latissimus dorsi. Perhaps that, that she was might. the plan, actually, that mm-hmm. she was going to have. So I didn't really finish the story in terms of her surgery, Neil. She, at the end of November, and remember this all happened in early November, so within two to three weeks of that diagnosis, she underwent a right mastectomy, as Antonio just mentioned, with no plan for immediate reconstruction. The tumor was six centimeters was, again, a grade 3. We actually repeated ERPR and HER2, which were the same. It invaded into the pectoralis, but the margins were negative with taking a little divot, I think is the term that the surgeon used, of pectoralis. They were able to close it without any difficulty. And 15 of 21 lymph nodes were positive, with the largest axillary lymph node being 3.5 centimeters. Wow. So what were you thinking when she got back to you post-op? Well, I saw her post-op, and I saw her one week later in the delivery room. Hmm. So just to give you an idea of how quickly everything happened, they felt that not too long after the surgery, she'd be capable of undergoing a vaginal delivery. And in fact, she delivered a baby boy and saw me post-operatively within, I think, about two weeks of the delivery. So... Antonio, what would you have been thinking at that point in terms of once the delivery occurred and you're ready for adjuvant therapy? 
Yeah, she needs treatment, doesn't she? And I hope she will be among those patients who will benefit. And that's one potential argument for also in terms of having that prognostic information to consider the use of preoperative systemic therapy in this setting as the available data from various groups, from Lisa Carey's data set at UNC, also from MD Anderson, suggesting that patients who have triple negative disease who receive preoperative systemic therapy and who have a pathologic complete response. Actually, these are the patients that have the best possible outcome, while other patients who have residual disease, even among patients who have a great pathologic response but not a PCR, that these patients may actually still be at a very significant risk of a subsequent disease recurrence, despite the excellent, if you will, initial preoperative response. So in many cases, this would be perhaps reassuring to the physician as well, and most importantly to the patient, to try to predict the future because she clearly has a very high risk of disease recurrence. Any comments in terms of choice of chemotherapy, Antonio? I think, I mean, we're talking about combination regimen, of course, and I'm not sure if there is one specific regimen that I would be particularly enamored. I think the key issue is that she should be a candidate for treatment with an intracycline and treatment with a taxane. At least in the adjuvant setting, I believe that those remain the standard treatment of records. A lot of discussions about the use of platinum compounds and related regimens. But not unless you were doing it in a neoadjuvant setting as part of a trial. In, so, right. Yeah. I would In the adjuvant setting or the neoadjuvant setting, I would only do that as part of a clinical trial. It's a lot of interest in the metastatic setting of platinum agents for these tumors. Now, in terms of clinical trials, and I don't know whether she would be eligible with the disease being so advanced, I'm trying to think about what options might be kind of interesting and creative. I guess one would be the ECOG trial looking at chemo plus bevacizumab, Antony. What do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, if she were in our shop, we definitely would be discussing with her the ECOG 5103 option of AC followed by weekly paclitaxel alone versus the same chemotherapy regimen with six months of bevacizumab or chemo with 12 months of bevacizumab which has a 1 to 2 to 2 randomization ratio, so she would have a very reasonable chance of receiving bevacizumab. The hope, of course, that the agent will be useful in the long run. And as Antonio and I talked about in that regimen, if she were receiving the bevacizumab, there would have to be a delay in her ultimate reconstruction, but she could certainly have proceeded with radiation. Yeah, and that's actually an important thing to discuss with patients, and it didn't occur to me until after I enrolled my first patient on the E5103 trial, is that we got used to the idea of in her two positive breast cancer to give chemotherapy and then complete a whole year of trastuzumab, but often telling patients you don't need to worry about it. Once you finish your chemo, you start your trastuzumab, you can begin your endocrine therapy, you will have your radiation, and if you need reconstruction, it can be done right away. And that is not true when you're talking about bevacizumab because of the risk of complications with surgical procedures around the time of bevacizumab. So this is mandating a delay in any reconstruction until after bevacizumab is completed. And, of course, we were talking about neoadjuvant therapy and bevacizumab is being looked at by the NSABP along with chemotherapy in that setting. Antonio, what do we know about bevacizumab and triple negative disease? I think the best data set potentially comes from the ECOG 2100 trial, the study led by Kathy Miller for ECOG on behalf of the intergroup 
This was the study of paclitaxel and bevacizumab where there was a substantial prolongation, a doubling essentially of the progression-free survival to almost 12 months. And what was quite reassuring to a degree was that actually when you look at the forest plots for the various tumor phenotypes, there was essentially no difference in terms of the benefit offered by the addition of bevacizumab. So patients with triple negative tumors, ERP or HER2 negative tumors, benefited equally well from the addition of bevacizumab. So I don't think we can say that this is a regimen that should preferentially be used in triple negative patients, but it is quite reassuring to see that it is effective. So, Steve, what happened? What did you decide to do? She started actually on the TAC regimen, not on a clinical trial. We do have the U.S. Oncology TC versus TAC regimen trial, and that will eventually have a bevacizumab arm. It's supposed to be a three-arm study through the NSABP. I would admit that I was not comfortable in omitting the anthracycline in her case and having her randomized. And I guess the third arm will be TC bevacizumab. TC bevacizumab, that's correct. Interesting, and non-anthracycline. Non-anthracycline. So she's received three cycles and actually was seen in the office today for her fourth cycle. She's tolerating it well. The one toxicity that she's having is increased tearing, which may be from some tear duct stenosis from the taxotere. And she is prepared to go back to work within about two weeks of completing her chemotherapy. And she wanted to know if she could move up her radiation to two weeks after the chemotherapy was completed so that she wouldn't have to waste any time to get back to work. This is with four children now under the age of six and a half and a new infant. And Neil, this is actually was the most interesting. Steve saw this patient right after the other patient we just described where the husband is having so many difficulties. This is a couple that is totally engaged and incredibly pragmatic, looking at the bright side. Things are actually, she's doing well. And she's actually, I mean, she had this diagnosis, had a mastectomy two weeks later, she delivered. A few weeks later, she started her chemotherapy. She has four kids at home, all younger than age six. And she's actually looking forward to going back to work, almost as if this will be a little bit of a hobby of a recreation for her. And it was absolutely humbling to see this couple in action. What's her family history, and she had genetic... uh, She did. She's BRCA1 and 2 negative. She actually does have a relative in her 30s. It was a paternal grandmother with breast cancer. We did test her. Her ultimate plan for surgery is she'll have a prophylactic contralateral mastectomy and then reconstruction. The plastic surgeon felt very comfortable that he could do a latissimus flap on the ipsilateral side to cover that area after radiation with an implant and would do a simple mastectomy on the contralateral side with a tissue expander. The only editorial comment I would add is at least our plastic surgical group, they do like it whenever possible in these patients who have a mastectomy and are going to have post-mastectomy radiation with future plans for reconstruction, if at all possible, to put a tissue expander right away as a space-saving device and to preserve a little bit of the skin envelope to facilitate subsequent reconstruction, whether with a rotating flap or... Right. I think the problem, again, in her case was that they weren't sure they could even close this with excess skin. They had just enough skin to actually do a normal closure, so the feeling was that they would need the latissimus flap really to come over 
in order to finally do yeah, her I, reconstruction. Yeah, I think so. It that's looks the like reason. in this case, it looks like the discussion took place, and I think that's the major yeah, point. Exactly for those listening to she this had conversation. Met, she had met the plastic surgeon in yeah. advance, and he was available. But the plan was that if the skin closure were such that there was not enough excess skin, which they were fairly certain would be the case, that they would do an immediate closure without an expander. 